good idea. You know, prayer works. Amen. I think maybe we should pray and invite the Lord in on this and ask for his divine aid, both as I speak, but as you listen, and ask for his help and his guidance and for his spirit to be with us this morning as we work through his word. So let's just take a time out and go to the Lord for a minute. We'll dive in. Lord, we don't count it a small thing to approach your word, and we understand that we need you, and we do need your divine aid. So would you be with us, Lord? Would you speak to us, encourage us, convict us? Ultimately, may we find your word to be profitable in our lives this morning. I pray that our church and that our families and we as individual Christians, that we would be healthier and stronger and built up because of our time spent in Esther chapter number two. So would you use this, please? Lord, we ask for your help even as we uh, work through these next couple weeks, all that's on the docket. Lord, tomorrow kids will show up and we want your help to educate and to influence. And Lord, we want your help with these projects and working out all the little details on them. And all that we say and all that we do, Jesus, we submit to you and we tell you that we want it to be for your glory. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you missed last week, let me catch you up a little bit. We started our series, The God of Great Reversals, and we worked through Esther chapter number one last week. And Esther chapter number one, you're basically introduced to Xerxes. Xerxes is also known as Ahasuerus. He's this Persian king who is extremely powerful. He rules the known world at that time. He sits on a throne. What he says is as the voice of heaven, the voice of the sun. He wants people to behold his glory, to behold his majesty. He's rich. He has multiple palaces. He has absolute opulence. He has this party to end all other parties where he has a six-month party with 10,000 or so people where there's unlimited food and drink, and he has this impressive, desirable kingdom, but also in many ways, as we ended chapter one last week, we saw that he has this laughable kingdom because he's full of pride. He's a man who gets drunk and he makes dumb choices, not the least of which is divorcing his queen because she won't allow him to parade her in front of a bunch of other drunken men. And we'll see in a moment that he regrets this decision. He knows it's a bad decision. And we're supposed to look at even the decrees that they give and see them as illogical and stupid and full of fallacies. But we dare not laugh too long or hard at this kingdom because we will find this week that the kingdom is also a very frightening place to live. And what we will look at today, I will tell you up front, is not an entirely fun message. In many ways, it will send shivers down your spine. This is, it's even kind of PG-13 in a lot of areas. But we'll find that the power of this empire, though it's, it's, it's laughable in some respects, it's not a joke. And it is dark, and it is ugly, and it will exert its power in any way it sees fit. So we're going to look at this together. Esther chapter number 2, verse number 1. I want to start just with the first three words, after these things. You say, after these things, after what things? Well, certainly after the things of chapter 1, the book is arranged in chronological order. But more than that, there, you have to know that there is a big gap in between chapter 1 and chapter 2. There is a three to four year gap. We know this, first of all, because of the text. So chapter 1, verse 3 told us it was the third year of Ahasuerus' reign. If you look in chapter 2, verse 16, when Esther is introduced, you'll find it's the seventh year of Ahasuerus' reign. So this is a three to four year period that has expired in between dismissing, dismissing Vashti as queen and now finding a new queen that we'll see in chapter 2. We also know this just because of history. And it's good that we know that our biblical account lines up with the historical account. We know from history that Xerxes actually went out on a multi-year unsuccessful military campaign against Greece. This was really the last corner of the known world that he had yet to conquer. His father Darius could not conquer the Greeks, and so Xerxes amassed what was probably the largest known army up until that point in history. Many estimate that it was a million soldiers plus. It was a massive army, and he was going to go conquer Greece. And you can read about this actually from Herodotus, 
Herodotus is a Greek historian. He's actually known as the father of history because there were historians before Herodotus, but the way it went was one nation won, let's say Babylon won, and they would have historians that they hired and they paid to tell the story from the Babylonian perspective. And that would be inflated and added to and pretty jaded Herodotus was the first one that we know of, and this is why he's called the father of history, who steps onto the scene and says, no, I just want to be objective. I just want to tell you what happened. I just want to give you the facts. So he gives us in this time period much history about the Greeks, about the Persians, about the empire. And he even records, as do other historians, this military campaign. You probably have heard a part of it. One of the most famous battles in all of world history actually took place during this military campaign where the king of Sparta, Leonidas, led 7,000 men to Thermopylae to hold off the massive Persian army. And they went to Thermopylae, which is known as the Hot Gates, to this narrow pass where this massive army had to funnel down and they were able to basically fight them one-on-one because the whole army couldn't get at them. And they, they held them off and made this, this grand last stand for a week, allowing the messengers to go throughout Greece, notify the armies, notify the people, get them ready, and really... He, he saved the day, as it, as it were, for Greece. So you may have heard of that battle. That's beside the point. That all happened during this time frame. So during this three to four year period, this happens. So when you're introduced again to Xerxes in 2-1, what you find is that he is a man who is home, licking his wounds, it defeated in battle, unable to accomplish his grand plan in fulfilling what his father wanted even for his life. So we find after this happened, Then when the wrath of King Ahasuerus was appeased, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what was decreed against her. So three years prior, he had got to be friends with Jack Daniel and Jim Bean, and he got a little tilted, and he got angry, and he made this decree, and he divorced his wife, and he banished her, and now one morning... After being home, probably a little down on himself, defeated, he wakes up, turns on some country western, and starts reminiscing and thinking, oh, what did I do? It was all good back then, and I lost her, and I lost the battle. And this is his state of mind, right? And what we, what we see just even right away is Xerxes is this man who chases the glory, but he gets the misery, right? And this is the way it works. When you chase the glory for yourself, my throne, my kingdom, my rule, worship me, be about me, world centered around me, universe centers around me. When that's you, you you chase the glory, you want it for yourself, but it always ends in misery. It, It never gives you what you want. It never satisfied. And he is this man who we see as this kind of empty man who wanted everyone to worship him but he fails to understand that we are creatures of worship meaning we're made to worship God we're not made to worship each other or to worship ourselves or to worship stones and trees and false gods we're meant to worship the creator of the universe and and that's where you find fulfillment when you live for God's glory but he's this man who he chased it he wanted the glory I'm even reminded of the song that Hugh Jackman sings in the movie Greatest Showman, there's this line that for years and years, I chased their cheers at the crazy speed of always needing more. And that, I think, encapsulates Xerxes' life right now. For years and years, he had chased these cheers, but it was at this speed that he always needed more. He always needed more. And, and he's always left a bit empty. So here he is, and we're going to find that he gets some more bad advice. He got bad advice in chapter 1, but chapter 2, here it is. Then said the king's servants that ministered unto him. So these are not the seven senior advisors who gave him drunken bad advice in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. These are more like the household staff. These aren't the senior advisors. These are the young guys. So Xerxes is this man who, first of all, gets advice from drunk, powerful men. Bad idea. Now he's going to get advice from young men. Bad idea again. Different groups equally bad ideas okay if you're looking for advice or or just guidance for your life drunk powerful men and young men are not the way to go and i'm well aware that i'm on the younger side of the young men equation okay this is why even personally i don't do a ton of counseling like end up counseling i defer almost all of that not that i can't or that i don't understand the bible but i defer almost all of that to men who are older than me who have more experience 
who frankly are better at it than I am because I understand that I'm at a disadvantage with, I have a decade into marriage, but I don't have 20 or 30 years. My kids aren't out of the house. I haven't lived through some of those things yet. So here he is getting advice from these guys. And let me say, this is, this is just a, a bad idea, especially for the single people in the room or the younger people in the room, okay? So if you're a young married couple or you're single or you're a teenager, you will be prone to get your advice from your peers, even Xerxes himself is in his 30s at this point in time. You'll be prone to want to go get life advice from your peers, which it may, it may not be completely devoid of wisdom, but more often than not, it's not a good idea. The Bible even tells us to have this set up where the older instruct the younger. You can read about that in Titus. It's a good idea to go to people that are wiser than you and older than you and beyond you to get your advice from them. Just, that's, just put that in your back pocket. That's free, Okay. I will say for everyone, though, when you find yourself in a vulnerable place, which Xerxes is in right now, kind of defeatist, down, vulnerable, you do have to be very careful just in general where you get your advice, no matter what age you are, okay? Be very, very careful who you listen to when you're at a vulnerable spot in your life. Choose that carefully because it could be, could be really detrimental. So here's the advice. He goes to the young men. I tend to think of them kind of as, as these frat boys or something because the advice they give is basically like, let's get some women. Like that's, that's their solution to the problem. So here it is. Let there be fair young virgins sought for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather together all the fair young virgins unto Shushan the palace to the house of the women unto the custody of Hegi, the king's chamberlain, keeper of the women, and let their things for purification be given them, and let the maiden which pleaseth the king be queen instead of Ashti. And the thing pleased the king, and he did so. So here it is. King, you're lonely, divorced your wife, bad decision. But look on the bright side, you're single now, man, okay? You are eligible, now you, you are available, so we know. Let's have a contest. Maybe we can even get ABC to air this for us. We'll call it The Bachelor, right? The Bachelor First Lady Edition. We don't need to give roses. We'll give a crown. You thought that idea was new and they were inventive. No, it's that's really old idea, okay? Let's get this competition going. The only, let's not take applications. Let's just go gather them up. Don't put the word out to the virgins. Put the word out to the people who rule the provinces and tell them, you find a young virgin who's beautiful, just bring them on in here. Don't give them, we're not putting a website and a form where you can apply for this. No, 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 you don't have a choice. Let's just get them and bring them, why? Because you're the king and because you can do that. And I will say up front that calling this a beauty contest would be an appropriate way to teach a second grade class or a third grade class, but this is far deeper than Miss Persia, Okay. We will find in, in no uncertain terms here in a few moments in the text that this is in fact a sex competition. And when it speaks of the one who's going to please the king, it's talking about pleasing him in bed. And this is an absolute abuse of power. This is not just line them up for me so that I can see which one's the prettiest and I can choose one and, and get down on one knee and say, will you accept my offer? No, 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 no. This is a terrific abuse of power. And we need to know up front that this is not just for the women, but also for the men. It's both. This isn't a, a, like a sexist point. So this is appalling for what's going to happen to these young women. That they're going to be ripped away from their families or away from the young men who hope to marry them or they're engaged to or whatever the case may be. They estimate there's probably three, 400 on this round of what they're doing. Uh, there's probably three or 400 young women. And all of the, you can think of all the tears and all the grief and all the sadness that was in each of those individual stories. But there's also the young men who are the chamberlains, or you can call them the eunuchs, meaning to put it bluntly, young men that have been taken by the king and castrated so that they can spend time with women and take care of them, but, but not mess with his women, okay? And they didn't volunteer for that. Herodotus writes about that as well and says that there were, his estimate was 500 young men would be taken a year from Babylon and from Assyria to be brought into the king's court to be made eunuchs of. 
So it, male, female, I'm not sure which one of these groups gets the worst end of the deal in this story. Either way, it is egregious, and it is dark, and it is exploitative, and it is ugly that this would be happening and that he would okay this. And you need to know that the idea of, of dirty men or powerful men or even powerful women, but I'll go specifically men, the idea of them exploiting people and using their power for their own advantages, especially their own sexual advantages, that's not new. That's not new. Harvey Weinstein's and Jeffrey Epstein's and Catholic priests and Baptist pastors who want to act like demigods and act like they're dictators and rulers of their own little universe, that stuff isn't new, okay? That is as old as sin, that goes before Xerxes even. That, that's the human heart. That is a sinful, depraved human heart, and it comes out of us. This, I, I'm never surprised by what I see in the news, or the reports, or this happened, or that happened. That, that's been around for a long time. It's not right. It's ugly. It's sin. It's against God. It's against your fellow humans. It takes away value and dignity and worth from other people. Some of you right now, this, this is kind of a painful point. You want me to move on because you've been subject to some of this and you've been the vulnerable one or you've been the young one or you've been in that position where you've been taken advantage of and this, that happens. And when you see this text, I mean, immediately to say, oh, we had a beauty contest. No, 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 no. You're, you're watering down how, how tragic this really is, how dark this really is. I read recently, recently I say maybe two years ago or so, maybe three, I forget now, but I read Killing Jesus by Bill O'Reilly. And that just basically gives a lot of the history around the, the time frame of the first century and the life of Christ. It follows a lot of the Caesars of the Roman Empire and it chronicles much of the abuse of power, especially in a sexually exploitative way, that the Caesars had and what they did with people and how they trafficked boys and girls and would, and would partake in pedophilia and then murder them afterwards to cover up the evidence. And, and all this is and you're thinking like, oh, my, that was disgusting. I can't believe that. I can't believe that culture. But then you fast forward the table a couple years and Bill O'Reilly himself, the guy who pinned the words about the abusive, sexually exploitative guy, is being dismissed from his job because he's taking advantage of women sexually settling you know tens of millions of dollars in lawsuits because he did this and it's it's like caesar to today and anywhere in between that's that's always been that's all and it's sad and it's wrong but it's always been and this this is the powerful people using the weaker people they exist for their pleasure and no dignity no value ascribed to these people just do what we want now, so far in the story, there really is no connection to the rest of the Old Testament. If you just read Esther chapter 1 and the first few verses of Esther chapter 2, you'd be like, thanks for the history, but I have no idea how that connects with God, the people of God, the purposes of God, the plan of God. Like, this is just all a bunch of Persian stuff. But you find in chapter 2, verse 5, all of a sudden, these dots are going to start connecting, and you're going to see why Xerxes is of significance and why this competition is of significance as it pertains to the people of God, and we're introduced to this man, Mordecai. Now, in the Shushan, the palace, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. I won't spend long on this. Just make note. When it says son of Kish, if, if you think Kish, I know that name, I know that name. Kish was Saul's dad. The, the son of King, or the father of King Saul. And that's going to actually, just tuck that away in the back of your head. That's going to be of importance later on in the story. Not right now, but later on. So just mental note. Who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Je, uh, Je, Jeconiah, excuse me, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. So let me explain this, because there's a lot of history there. This is talking about 85 years prior. 85 years prior, the people of God were in Judah and Jerusalem, all in, in their hometown, uh, not worshiping God, not serving God. And God had told them, I'm going to punish you. I'm going to destroy the city. I'm going to put you in captivity. I'm going to do it by the hand of the Babylonians. And he did. You can read about this in Isaiah. You can read about this in Habakkuk. He, he had prophesied this. So they come, they conquer, and, and Nebuchadnezzar takes away many exiles. Nebuchadnezzar actually did this twice. 
The first round was probably Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the, the young men who had promised. They took them away. They actually made, if you read Daniel 1, they made Daniel and those boys eunuchs. So this happens to them. Then they actually did it again. They came back, Nebuchadnezzar conquered again, ripped down the walls, took more captives. So for 85 years, much of the people of God have been in exile. Babylon is overthrown by the Persians and Cyrus. Cyrus makes a decree, as God predicted he would, Cyrus makes a decree that the people of God can go back home. They don't have to be in Babylon any longer. They don't have to live in modern-day Iran any longer. They can go back home. Then even Darius further allows the, the rebuilding to happen. So you can read about this in Ezra and in Nehemiah and in Haggai, that many of these people go back home and they begin to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple and make home again. But there were some who did not go. They didn't go back home. They stayed put in the pagan culture. And what we know of Mordecai is that he stayed put. Now we don't know why. We'll see at the end of chapter 2 next week that Mordecai does have a place of service in the kingdom. He is a civil servant of sorts. So maybe he just had a comfy job. Maybe his parents were old and he didn't think they could make the trip and they wouldn't survive it. We don't know. All we know is that the people who were yearning for God and for his place in his kingdom went home to rebuild in the other state, which was not generally a positive thing. And Mordecai is part of this group that chooses of his own volition to stay there in the pagan culture, okay? Verse number uh, 7. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther. Hadassah is her Jewish name. Esther is her Persian name. His uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own daughter. So this is his uncle's daughter, meaning Esther is his cousin. So Mordecai and Esther are cousins. Mordecai is presumably significantly older because the text says that he takes her as his daughter and he raises her when her parents die. We don't know how her parents died. We just know Esther's an orphan. And you can think of Mordecai as her cousin, but the, the best way to think of Mordecai is as her dad as her adoptive dad who took her in and said, let me care for you and let me raise you. And we know that these two, Mordecai and Esther, people of God, the point is that they're exiles, they're misfits, they're people of God in the midst of a pagan culture, and he doesn't belong, she doesn't belong in this culture really, so they're going to be marginalized, they're going to be vulnerable, they're going to be weaker, and in many ways they are representations of Christians. Because we know, according to the New Testament, that we as Christians right now living here on this earth are in fact strangers, foreigners, pilgrims, all words that the New Testament uses of us, and that we actually need to abstain from fleshly lust, which war against our soul, meaning that we are the people who are in the middle of the pagan culture and are going to have things that come at us and war against us and tempt us and say, look at us, chase your own glory, get your own wealth, do it the way of the world, that we are these people, just like Mordecai and Esther. And it says in verse number 7, Sorry where you looked at that, verse number 8, that Esther is swept up in this. So there's this competition that they set up for the king. Here's Esther, verses 6 and 7, told us she was beautiful. And you can probably connect the dots already, but it's going to connect them for you and let you know that Esther is, she becomes a part of this. Verse 8, so it came to pass, when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together under, under Shushan the palace to the custody of Hege, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house to the custody of Hege, keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, speaking of Hege, the keeper of the women. And she obtained kindnesses of him, and he speedily gave her things for purification with such things as belonged to her and seven maidens, which were meet to be given to her out of the king's house. And he, Hege, preferred her and her maids unto the best place of the house of the women. So, Esther is swept up in this. She's brought to the king's house that you can think of as the king's harem. And she's put under the custody of the man who oversees this. And you find that this is a competitive world from the get-go. 
that as the girls come in and as they're assimilated, they all take a number and they begin to assess which ones are the most promising, which ones are the sexiest, which ones have the most potential. And you find from the get-go, even before Esther visits the king, that from the get-go, Esther is the front runner. That Esther, if the power rankings came out for this competition, the Bachelor First Lady edition, that Esther is, is one of the top few. She's, she's up there, right? The Vegas odds on her, they have her as a favorite. So Heggie gives her, it says, the, the place, like he gives her the suite instead of the bunk beds. He gives her the filet instead of, you know, instead of just the flank steak. He gives her the, the nice cosmetics instead of the cheap drugstore ones. He takes care of her because she's the favorite kind of out of the gate here. And this is how Esther's culture operates. Basically, you are ascribed value by the size of your wallet and the size of your dress. If, if you're King Xerxes and you have stuff and you have opulence, then people will look at your glory and say you're rich and look at your palace and you get value from the size, value from the size of your wallet. And she, all these girls who are beautiful, they get value from the size of their dress. Now, aren't you thankful we just don't live in that culture anymore? Wink, wink. Right? Can't you see a little bit of a common thread from 2,500 years ago to today of still people being looked at and valued and treated differently based on the connections they have, the influence they have, the money they have, the beauty that they have? That Not much has changed. There are still today lots of people who will stay in jobs that they hate and they're miserable in, but it gives them the leverage, the opportunity, the power, the money, so I'll, I'll put up with it, I'll endure it, because it gives me what the world values, right? And I value it too. There, there are lots of young women, not just young women, but especially young women, who will have these eating disorders that attack them, not completely. There's, I know that's a complicated subject, but much of the time it is because I've been told that I need to look this way and be this way, and, and so I'm, I'm going to mistreat myself just to be sure that I follow the expectations that culture has placed on me. This, this is not at all uncommon. Even the way that singles approach prospective mates, even the way Christian singles approach prospective mates, I know that uh, Kia and Brian, where are you at, Kia and Brian? Wave at me. Okay, I just saw them in the lobby, just got engaged. Okay, they're, they're loud and proud about it, just got engaged. Okay, so I'm sure, give her, yeah, we can give you a round of applause. That was relatively weak, but hey, I, I'm for you. I'm sure they didn't do it this way, but many singles look at their prospective mates, even Christian singles, and basically say, man, if I got 10 options up there, first cut. How much money? What's the job look like? How attractive are they? There goes eight. Two left. Dear God, I hope they have character. That happens all the time. All the time. And I'm not saying that being attracted to your spouse is trivial. I'm not saying that having a job that can support a, a family is trivial. I would, though, recommend that that be at least the second cut. But their first cut be... Do they know Jesus? I'm a Christian. Are they saved? Uh, do, they, do they have character oozing out of them? Do they have a heart for God? Let me cut that first. Now I'll look at these. But oftentimes, singles eliminate people who would be great mates, who have tons of character, who would be unbelievable fathers and mothers and spouses. But why? Because we operate by the, by the wallet and the waist size. This happens all the time. The point is that this culture that we can look at and decry and say, oh, that's wrong, that's crazy, this is messed up, oh, my word. Don't, don't think we're too far from this mess, okay? This, this happens all the time. Look at verse number, verse number 10. Esther, it gets worse. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. Don't tell him you're a Jew. Don't tell him you're the, you're the people of God. Don't tell him you read the Torah. No, don't. And Mordecai walked every day before the court of the woman's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. All right, I could preach the whole sermon on these two verses right here, so I'll try to be brief. This, first of all, shows us there's an atmosphere of danger. The reason that, they, that Mordecai wants Esther to hide this, the reason that Esther does hide this, is because they know that they could face hostility for their faith. 
And if you think, oh, I don't know, I didn't read that, keep reading the book of Esther. You'll find that all of the Jews are going to be exterminated, okay? So it's, it's, it's not unfounded that there could be hostility or that someone's going to rise up and try to, try to take advantage of them or hurt them, okay? So they are hiding their faith because there is the potential that they would face hosti- hostility for it. Right? So let's just stop there and ask, is that us? Because this is not a good thing. What Esther and Mordecai are doing is not, is not commendable here. But this is very common for Christians to be cultural Christians or Christian chameleons and to try to tiptoe through the culture saying, I don't know, can I make my faith public? Should I let them know I'm a Christian? Should I let them know I go to church? Should I offer to pray for them? I don't know. What do they think? Is that my boss? Are they a Christian? Are they fond of that? Are they a Muslim? Will this cost me? Could it cost me? I don't, it's very common. Young people, okay, teenagers, very common, very common for a teenager to have this heart of, well, I'd rather have friends, or I would rather have their approval, or I'd rather have the glory, and if being a Christian is going to detract from that, or then I won't get invited to the party, or I'll, I'll be ostracized a little bit or something because of my faith, then I won't be bold, I won't speak up, bad move, bad move. This happens all the time, and we, we are... Aren't we experiencing right now that year after year it seems as though our own culture that we live in is becoming more and more hostile towards our faith? And a couple notes on this. Number one, we should understand that we don't have it rough, okay? We, even right now today, we have it better than the vast majority of Christians who have walked the planet, Okay? We, we got to understand that. Like, we're, <laughs> we are blessed compared to what so many Christians have had to endure. However, we do sense that Christians are becoming more and more of a minority, especially Christians who will step up and be vocal and say, I mean, I'm not a genius, but I can read. And, like, that's what the book says, right? That is, that is becoming increasingly difficult to do. Not because there's universal hostility. Esther didn't face universal hostility. It wasn't that every person in every situation would, would be hostile towards her faith, but there was an ever-present danger. There was the possibility of hostility at all times, and, and we can sense that today in our own culture. There is always the possibility that I'll say something that they don't like or I'll offend them or now I'm being intolerant or now I'm, I'm being, you know, backwoods or old-fashioned or a prude or whatever. We face that all the time. And we're left with the options of do I be over in my faith and just make it known, I love Jesus, I love his word, I'd love to share him with you, come to church with me, I'm a Christian, no, I don't do that, that's not cool, no, I I don't want to see that, it's not funny to me. Do we make that known and be over, or do we be like Esther and Mordecai and get covert and start to back up and shy away and weigh the risk and try to calculate it and try to figure it out? And the Bible is uniform on this, Old Testament and New. You, You cannot wiggle around it. The Bible is uniform that you be over in your faith. But you, even if it's not popular, you don't shy away. You say, but that means, you know, I could be in these really tough situations where that could cost me my job, that could cost me their approval, that could cost me, you know, social status. Yes, I'm aware of that. I am aware of that. But even if it costs us, you still stand. That's what you're supposed to do. And when you do stand, it does cost you. You don't go in a corner and suck your thumb and pout about it. You, you move on for Jesus and don't become a crybaby. But here's Esther and Mordecai who are in this culture of danger that Mordecai has chosen to stay in. Here they are shying away and becoming covert in their faith. And you find that Esther is entirely passive through the whole text. Passive, passive, passive. More to come on that, but she's passive. And the reason she's passive, according to this, and what's maddening about it, is because Mordecai told her to be so. Okay? Okay? Mordecai, her dad, who should have been a spiritual leader in her life, says, Esther, keep a low profile, stay invisible, just be compliant. That's her dad, okay? Now, I know that not everyone in the room is a dad. I'm a dad to a daughter. If I'm a dad, and people, I get word that people are going to show up and they're going to escort my daughter away to go have one night with this 
egomaniacal maniac who sits on a throne and says that he speaks as the voice of God, um, I'm not going Mordecai's route. I don't know what exactly I'd do. I don't know if I would smuggle my daughter out of the country. I don't know if I'd shave her head and, and say, you know, she's a boy. I don't, I don't know what, I, probably not that one. I, I don't know if I'd start loading the shotgun and have to do prison ministry from the inside. But I'm doing something, right? Amen. That's my daughter. I'm her dad. I'm not going to be passive about it. I'm not going to tell her to be compliant about it. And Esther, just do whatever the men want you to do. That seems like terrible advice, right? So here's a, here's a man that, it, as a father, is just, he's off his rocker. He's a passive father. And so dad's in the room, and I'll even push it to moms and to, and to granddads and grandmothers, but especially dad's in the room. Please don't be a, a passive father. And I understand that. I don't have a teenager yet. I don't have a young adult daughter yet. And I know that that's more difficult than I anticipate it, it will be. I know, I know, but I'm, I'm here to tell you this is good advice. I haven't lived there, but it's good advice nevertheless. Please don't let your 13-year-old or 14-year-old or 16-year-old or 20-year-old for that matter, I'm not sure we came up with, she's an adult now, so I have no say in the matter. If you're a dad, don't be passive. Well, you know, they, they really like each other and they're spending a lot of time together. I think they're even fooling around a little bit. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to go Mordecai, you know, I'm, I'm going to pace back and forth, I'm going to try to find out some information, and I'm going to be worried, and I'll even pray a little bit. Yo, say something. Do something. Like, step up to the plate. Well, I, don't, I, I want to keep the peace. I mean, I don't, I don't want to cause a commotion. I, don't, I mean, that boy, his parents, I mean, I, I could offend them. Get over it and be a dad, Okay. <laughs> Well, she's 17 now. She needs to start making some decisions on her own. And that's true on, on its surface level. But if they're sleeping together and about to move, step up. Like, step up and be a dad about it. This is a man, it's a, it's a classic example of what not to do. Don't be this, this passive person who just sits back and just lets it happen and go with the flow and be compliant. Don't, don't let guys make decisions for your daughters. Can I just sum it up that way? As a dad, don't let guys make decisions for your daughters. When she's married, fine. That's her husband. But until then, no, don't. All right, you let me rant. Thank you. Verse 12. Change of pace. Verse 12. You're going to see in more detail how this all worked, how this little game went about, what the rules were, what the system was. Here it is, verse 12. When every maid's turn was come to go into King Ahasuerus, after she had been 12 months, according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purifications accomplished to wit, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odors and with other things for the purifying of the women. You say, what, what is that? Okay. In the harem, a girl was beautified, kind of like a fattening a lamb for the slaughter, so to speak. And there was a year course in class that you got inserted into that was half spa, was half beauty treatments and let's make you poporific and get you smelling good and take care of your skin and make sure that, you, that you're beautiful and you're a little Barbie, okay? Get your diet where it should be, blah, blah, blah. Half education as well and not education on math. So for a year, you went through this. And then after that year, you then, your number got called and you had your one night with the king. So this, this is a systematized thing, okay? This is not something that they just willy-nilly came up with. This is something that has been ongoing. Heggy isn't new. The harem isn't new. The, the girls coming through, this isn't new. This has been going on for a long time. The king has had the women and the concubines and all the rest of it for a long time. Verse 13, Then thus came every maiden unto the king, what service she desired was given her to go with her out of the house of the women into the king's house. So you could kind of make a little order on your, you know, lingerie or what she wanted to wear, those sorts of things. In the evening she went, on the morrow she returned, okay? She doesn't go in the evening and come back in the morning because Xerxes needs help doing a night audit at the local hotel. The implications are very straightforward. And... After when she returned, 
she went into the second house of the women to the custody of Shashgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. So house divided in two parts, one for the virgins, one for the concubines, the women who are no longer virgins, okay? So you go have your night with the king, then naturally you're moved away from the virgins to the house of the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her and that she were called by name. So here's how it worked. Your year of education, your year of beauty treatments, all this. Then you go into the king. Now you're over in the other house. And only one of four things happened. Option one, one night with the king, and he, you're dead to him. He never knows you. He doesn't know your name. You never see him again. There is not an option on the table where you're going to leave the house or no longer be a concubine. You're still going to be his property, and you're still going to be on deck just in case he ever needed you, but you're staying there. Your boyfriend from back home is not going to ride in in a stallion and save you. That's not an option. So option one, you stay there, and you just live your life with the other women and the eunuchs who take care of you. And yeah, you'll be fed, and you'll be taken care of, but you're basically in the harem of a prison. Option two, you become a regular. He likes you. He remembers you. And this is repeated. Option three, you become a wife. Kings in these days would have one queen, multiple wives. Oftentimes the wives were more because they wanted to marry the king, uh, king's daughter from this kingdom. I have a big army. I'll defeat you. But we could do this a better way. Give me your bride. Pay me some tribute. I won't defeat you. We'll be partners. You'd be one of my provinces and you'd be a vassal state. Like that sort of stuff happened all the time. So you could be a wife. Option four, you're the grand champion and you become the queen. Your new Vashti. And not more power than Vashti had. You'll put a crown on your head, but it's just as good as her crown was. It's just decorative. You're a little sex kitten now. That's it. But you're the queen. And you have more power and more maidens and, and more stuff. This Now, you say, holy smokes, like, this is in the Bible? Like, that's, that's messed up. Yeah. Yes. But this is the system that Esther is in. This is how the game was played. This is how it works. Now, before we get too mad at Xerxes, let me just take a moment to recognize the obvious in the room. The difference between Xerxes and many American men, especially, but even women, but many American men and Christian men is that he was able to accomplish in reality what you're only able to accomplish virtually. What Xerxes had in live living color in front of him is what many of you have on your hard drive. And before you boo the mess out of Xerxes and say, look at this dirty man, look at how, how nasty and decrepit and vulgar, and look at how he uses and abuses women and does this, we best take a look in the mirror. Because while this exact system would not be permissible in our day and age, you go to certain areas of our country, you go to Vegas, eh, there's a system that's relatively close. You go to parts of Utah and you can have your multiple wives and all your stuff going on. There's a system that's not too far off. Stay away from those places. There's a pornography industry that is not too far off of this. And before you say, no, 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 he's forcing women and he's, he's making them do this and, and he's, you know, th th there's a difference between that and, and what I do. No, no. The majority of the women who are even in, in a pornography industry, you think they're there just because they really want to? Most of them, not all, but most, are in a very vulnerable spot, being taken advantage of, forced to wear a smile when they don't really feel like wearing a smile. And if we, as the people of God, contribute to that, we should just back up and say, mm, maybe I should do some repentance and some soul-searching before we move forward, right? So this is nasty, but not, let's not act like this is a universal way, because it's not. It's not. And if this is you, and you have a cycle of for a year, or two, or 10, or 20, man, I have this, this pattern of sin that looks a lot like this. I would encourage you, one, own it, two, repent, three, get some help and get some accountability, because there is help and there is accountability. And if you haven't been able to break the cycle on your own, in your own strength, 
last year or the year before or the year before that. I'm not trying to be negative or pessimistic, but the reality is you're probably not going to break that all by your lonesome this year, okay? You're probably going to need some help outside of yourself, and understand that it's going to be awkward and vulnerable and some confession, and what if my wife finds out, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, but you'd be far better off to face the music and not just keep living in Xerxes mode day after day, night after night. Moving on, what does Esther do? Verse 15, we're told, Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had been taken for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king, she stored a dagger in her dress and she stabbed him to death. No, she doesn't do that. You'd almost kind of like, I'm not for murder, but you'd almost like to read something like that, right? You're kind of hoping like, oh, this chapter is going to get like encouraging soon, right? No, it does not. She required nothing but what Heggy, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. So here's, here's what she does. Heggy, the guy who runs this whole show, the guy who does all the women, he's, he's in charge of it, the direct report to the king. You think Heggy knows what lights the king's fire, what he enjoys, what, what is particular to him? Sure he does. And Heggy has already favored Esther all through the story, and we're told that she just, she has an inside scoop and says, help me, point me in the right direction, and she just does what he says. She takes what he says to take, very compliant, very go with the flow. And it says this, and Esther obtained favor in the sight of all them that looked upon her. So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal in the 10th month, which is the month to Beth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women. So careful with the word loved. We can try to, oh, he loved her. Oh, that's romantic. Okay, loved could mean Anything from Christ loved the church and he gave himself for it, great. Or uh, Amnon loved his sister Tamar and raped her. Or anything in between, okay? So don't romanticize this. He loved her above all the women. She obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown upon her head. Ding, ding, ding. She is the winner. He made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and servants, even Esther's feast, and he made a release to the provinces, and he gave gifts according to the state of the king. So he's cheered up. I found my queen. This is great. Now, he's not canceling the harem or getting rid of all of his concubines, but Esther's the queen, okay? Let's just end today because I'm out of time. Let's just end today here. How's Esther doing so far? We didn't see her in chapter 1. We're introduced to her in chapter 2. How's she doing? You can read commentators, you can even read people who don't love the Bible, but they like history and, and just want to speculate on Esther. Pretty much everyone agrees Esther sold out. That she has sold out to the culture. Someone who would come from more of a liberal perspective or maybe a feminist perspective will decry Esther and say, look at her. She does everything she asks. She's compliant. She never rises up like Vashti and sticks it to the man. You know, Vashti, girl power. She said no, good for her. No, all she does is become a little Barbie doll. All she does is become a little sex kitten. All she does is become a blank page on which men can write whatever they want. And that's how she gets her high little perch. And they're right. But that, that's how it goes. But a liberal ideology decries Esther. The conservative ideology decries Esther and says, you're not the first person to be in a pagan culture. You're not the first person to be in exile. Daniel was in exile. And Daniel said, nope, I got a, I got a kosher diet. I'm not breaking God's law. I'm not eating that. Give me a different diet. Come what may. You, you say I can't pray and you're going to throw me in the lion's den? I'm going to pray. I'm going to follow God. Right? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. I'm not bending and worshiping you. We only worship Jehovah God. I'm not worshiping you. Throw me in the fire if you want. I don't care. These were men that were, that were in Esther's lifetime. And this wasn't a long time ago for Esther. It's possible that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego are still alive when this is written. This is an ancient history for her. She knows these stories. She knows what happened. But she doesn't. She goes with the flow. She doesn't follow the Torah. She breaks the dietary laws. She sleeps with a man she isn't married to. She marries an unbeliever, and she capitulates. That's the story of Esther in this chapter. But 
by the time you get to the end of Esther, she's a brave heart. By the time you get to the end of Esther, she's taking a stand. She's putting her life on the line. She is, she's willing to take the risk. She's willing to stand and identify herself with the people of God and the purposes of God. And she doesn't have a covert faith anymore. She has an overt faith anymore. And the note that I want to end on this morning is just a note of hope. Because this is a dark, kind of depressing chapter. But I want you to know, just if you zoom out and get some perspective, I don't mean to spoil the end that Esther gets, if you don't know the story, sorry, it gets better. Uh, but here in this, you see her vulnerable, you see her complicit, you see her just going with the flow and being carried along by culture. But by the end, she stands. And you have to take away from this, I think, at least the lesson, that if you've had a rough beginning Let's say that your life was just without God or without Christ and completely contrary to Jesus. Man, as I was a teenager, or I was a young man, or early on, or marriage, I didn't know how to do marriage, and I, I even maybe was a Christian, but I, 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 we've ended in divorce, and there's so many things that I would go back and I would do, and I would change if, if I had all to do over again, and I regret it, or even not, not just my life, but this year, it's been three, four months, and already this year, I've made some dumb choices and put myself in bad positions and gone with the flow and failed to take a stand and failed to witness and 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 that has or maybe it was just last night the last night was terrible it was just like sin 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 you have to know that there's still hope right that's the story of the bible of a great gracious merciful god redeeming people who are a mess and if you read the Bible, or for that matter, the book of Esther, and you read it like, oh, where are the good people and where are the bad people? Okay, I'll find the good people, I'll do what they do, and I'll find the bad people and I'll, and I'll avoid what they do. That ain't the way it works. There are bad people and there's Jesus, the end. And we, we see and know in certain terms that Esther and Mordecai have issues. Even as the people of God, they have issues. They have sin. They're, they're not living for God. They're not living the right way. But God is going to take these people and he's still going to use them. And he's going to use them in a great way for his glory, for his purposes. And you have to know that the, the Bible is not, oh, God uses great people. So if you've messed up and if you have all that baggage in your past and all the skeletons in your closet and the closet behind the closet and, and you have all that, then God's never going to use you. I'm here to tell you, you read it wrong. You read it wrong. The story is not that God uses great people. The story is that God's a great God who uses messed up people. So if you're messed up and you say, man, I've, I've been a passive parent and I've, been, I've just been a cultural chameleon of a Christian and I've, I have this covert faith around my coworkers and man, I, I'm just, I, I go with the flow and I have sexual misconduct. That's a, if that's you, yes, change it. Yes, see it for what it is and repent and change it. But know that God doesn't want to put your life on plan B and never use you and only use the people around you who are all clean and nice and pretty and awesome. No, 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 no. No, there's hope. There's hope that a great, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, patient God still has a plan for your life and he wants to put you on it and he wants to use it. So move through this week with purpose and intentionality and saying, you know what, I have confidence that, that my God hasn't forgotten me or forsaken me or lost me or he's done with me. He's not done with me. He still has a plan for me. Let's go through this week that way. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the 